Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Hi, everybody. I am out of breath. We just ran in from the rain. I am sitting across from Julia Hart. Not only are we birthday buddies, but we've been friends for over 12 years. It's been so exciting to watch Julia's professional career, and I can't wait to talk about it today and talk about motherhood and everything else. But as a strange little exercise, I'm going to ask Julia to read her bio herself. (laughs) And if it was two men talking on a podcast, which let's face it, that's most podcasts, As a listener, I'd be like, well, that sounds self-congratulatory. Like, do they really need a pat on their back? But I think as an exercise on Atomic Moms and as potential homework for all of you out there, write your bio tonight. Like, what would you say about yourself if I were introducing you on the podcast? And then I'd like you to try to read it out loud. So, Julia, will you be my guinea pig and do this yourself? I would be honored. Julia Hart is the co-founder, with her husband, producer and writer Jordan Horowitz, of the film and television production company Original Headquarters. Most recently, Julia directed and co-wrote with Jordan Horowitz, Stargirl for Disney, starring Grace Vanderwall, and based on the best-selling book by Jerry Spinelli. Her feature debut, Miss Stevens, starring Lily Rabe, Timothy Chalamet, Lily Reinhardt, and Rob Hubel premiered in competition at South by Southwest in 2016, where it won a special jury prize for Best Actress for star Lily Rabe and was later released by The Orchard. Fast Color, her second feature, starring Gugu Mbatha-Ra, Lorraine Toussaint, and David Strathairn, premiered at South by Southwest in 2018, released by Lionsgate Code Black in March 2019. Her debut screenplay, The Keeping Room, landed on the 2012 Blacklist and was made into a feature directed by Daniel Barber and starred Britt Marling, Hilly Steinfeld, and Sam Worthington. The film premiered at TIFF in 2014 and was released by Draft House Films. It is really intense reading your own bio. It is a good exercise. What's it make you feel? <laughs> Tired. <laughs> like, I'm, like I've done a lot. And it's really, it's, it is, it's, as you said, it's like, if it would feel like if a man was doing it, it would feel like bragging. But as a woman, I, it feels empowering because I think so often, um, we don't let ourselves talk about our accomplishments or we downplay our accomplishments. And so it is really nice to just sit here and read that big fat paragraph of all the stuff I've been up to in the last few years. While raising two children. While raising, yeah. I should have put that in the bio. (laughs) Julia Hart is also the mother of two wonderful, healthy little boys. Uh, And we have a recent addition to add to that, which I know our listeners will be excited about, especially Atomic Moms listener Olivia Howell. That's a shout out to you. We've got a lot of fans of Marvelous Miss Maisel that listen to the podcast. And Julia's next feature stars Rachel Brosnahan for Amazon Studios. Can you tell us like, yes. the logline of that yes, story? Yes, I can. Pretty much every script I've written since I became a mom is about moms because that's 
what I'm interested in telling stories about. And there aren't enough good stories about moms um, that are different or outside the box or fit into like some of the more traditional male genres like Fast Color, which is um, an indie super like an indie take on superhero stories. And uh, this movie starring Rachel Brosnahan for Amazon is an original script that my husband Jordan and I wrote, and it's called I'm Your Woman. And essentially it's about the wife of a thief, like a guy who steals uh, for a crime organization. And when he takes things too far, she and her eight-month-old baby have to go on the run. And so the movie follows her. It, it, it kind of fits into the traditional 70s crime thriller structure, but the story of the woman who's affected by the crimes that all of the men have committed and her baby. So, yeah. Well, I saw you do a Q&A recently for Fast Color. And in that Q&A, you mentioned that you didn't become a director until you were already a mother. Towards the end of this conversation, I hope to circle back to the fact that you were a high school English teacher. <laughs> and then you became a screenwriter and then a director. So what was it about becoming a mother that primed you to step into such a empowering but also scary field because it is so underrepresented by women. Yeah, and I feel like we're conditioned and socialized as women to think that we have to take a step back from work when we become mothers, and I did the opposite, <laughs> um, which was because I felt – because I so I transitioned from being a high school teacher to being a screenwriter, and then I watched The Keeping Room get made, which was the first script that I wrote, and it was directed by a man – and I was on set the whole time. and In Romania? In Romania, before I had kids. Um, and uh, I was watching him direct this story that I had written that was about three women. And I suddenly felt like it was an odd choice that I hadn't felt empowered myself to direct the movie and tell that story and take that story about these women across the finish line. And then when we got back from Romania was when I got pregnant with my first son and I had been working on this other screenplay and Jordan and I together were like, we should, we should make this one ourselves and I should direct it. And it was, I think, we cast Lily Rabe while I was still pregnant, but it wasn't until after I actually gave birth to Arthur that I felt like I can do this. And I think, you know, I was lucky that childbirth and becoming a mother made me feel the strongest I've ever felt. I know women go through all different kinds of experiences with all of that. But for me, I was, I felt like I could do anything. I was like, if I, if I could be pregnant and have a baby and, and keep him alive and raise him, I can certainly direct a movie. Was Lily Rabe attached knowing that you were going to be the director or what was that conversation like? Yeah. At that point, um, I think it I think it was when I was like five or six months pregnant that I was like, I should really I, I feel like now that I'm doing this, I can also do this other thing and I should really step into the leadership role on this next film and not give it to someone else to direct. And that was when we first approached her about it. When Arthur's on set, your soon to be kindergartner. <laughs> when Arthur shows up on set, what's that like? It's so it's so funny now because he's been on he's been on like four or five sets by now. So now he's like Mr. Set, 
<laughs> he like knows where the snacks are, like knows, you know, which which equipment he can like play around on and which equipment he can't. He starts to form relationships with different crew members and actors. And it's always awesome when he comes to set and everyone's so sweet to him and so excited to see him. But he definitely becomes the movie's mascot. He's been in a couple of the movies now. He was in La La Land and now he, which my husband produced, um, and he is in Stargirl as well. Um, and he, you know, it's fun. as long as he thinks it's fun and likes, you know, being a part of it. It was funny. Miss Stevens came up the other day. Jordan and I were talking about something, and Arthur goes, was I in that one? (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, no, but you were there a lot. Um, My production designer actually does. My production designer, Gabe Buckley, who I did Fast Color and Stargirl with and who will also do I'm Your Woman, she makes these books for us at the end of every movie, like those Apple, like, picture Mm -hmm. books that you can make. She makes them for our kids. And it's all these pictures of them on set and us on set. And it's so beautiful because she writes this story to go along with it as a way for them to understand what it is that's happening and what we're doing. Like, there's Mama on a location scout where she picks out all the different places we shoot the movie. Yeah, it's such a, it's the most amazing gift. That's amazing. Yeah. Listeners might recall an introduction I did years ago. Um after the Academy Awards, when I got all like teary eyed, <laughs> because uh, as everyone recalls, like Jordan Horowitz, your husband, who's working at my kitchen table right now, yeah. who again, we've all been friends for so many years. Also in the Birthday Buddy Club. And not birthday the exact buddy, day, no, but, but a couple Aries. days later. Like we yeah. threw a birthday party <laughs> for me, you, Jordan, and Claire Coffee, who everyone knows from the podcast as well. When we had first moved into our old house, which longtime listeners will also remember, like, us, the big move. And, like, I was, like, crying <laughs> on Instagram, like, walking out of that house for the first time because I was thinking about those memories. Like, yeah, we were so young. So young. I mean, it was, like, our own version of La La Land at that time. Mm. And then to see Jordan at the Academy Awards when they announced La La Land as the winner of Best Picture and then to see – how graceful he was in that charged moment. And, and it's he that did thing it so well. It's that thing too, I feel like, where we all lie in bed after like some big thing happens and we lie in bed later that night and we're like, ugh, I wish I'd said that. Or like I'll go to my <laughs> I'll go to my husband and be like, oh now I have the perfect comeback mm. for that argument we had two days ago. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that he like got to be his best self and yes. do the best version of the thing that needed to be done in that moment still blows my mind. Because millions of people were watching. He just had his professional dream come true, which I think everybody in the film industry would admit is winning an Oscar. And then in front of millions of people within the span of like 15 seconds, he had to, you know, switch gears, make it about the people who deserved and Mm -hmm. won the award and not make it about his own embarrassment, disappointment, surprise, and... um yeah, I was I was very proud of him, and I was also really excited for the example that it set for our kids. Yes. It was a perfect example of the kind of parent I want to be, without ego, uh, generous. And with genuine excitement and, yeah. for, instead of dwelling on the negativity of having lost or been embarrassed, he focused on the genuine joy that he felt— for his friends yes. who had actually won. 
because they they are our friends. A lot of the folks who made that movie are good friends of ours. And so I think he found that place in himself that was genuinely excited to hug them and give the award to them. And it was really fun when I watched La La Land to be like, there's Arthur with <laughs> Emma Stone. <laughs> like, that was so crazy. <laughs> and then I went to Arthur's birthday party and there was Emma Stone. <laughs> I was like, we live in such a weird world. I mean, the fact that Sabrina, my five-year-old, the very first movie she saw in a theater was Alvin and the Chipmunks Road Chip, which Adam <laughs> had written and which I had a small part in. It's like her first movie, like it's sitting like there in the mom. theater, like there's mom. Mom's and like dad crazy. did something. <laughs> dad had some part of this. I, I'd like to ask you, what's it like when you have those private, less graceful moments? Like we just talked about your husband's very public display of how one should behave. But as an independent maker, there must be moments of absolute frustration with my independent podcast. Like I will see the lists that go out in media of like mm. top podcasts. And it's like it's always a celebrity or there's always some huge media conglomerate behind it. And it's so frustrating because like I can't spend eight grand a month on a publicist to like get word out about my indie podcast. And for you with your – latest film fast color you know you you did get the headlines let me read a few of them let's see it was a new york times critics pick the la times headline was it's the anti avengers <laughs> an indie gym fast color a powerful new superhero story is born and the new yorker summed it up as heart depicts the three women's emotional bonds and conflicts with intense sincerity she conveys the symbolic import of their mighty abilities with an affecting melodramatic authority. Rave reviews all around. And then the movie <laughs> is taken out of most of the theaters within a week. How does it actually make you feel? <laughs> and, and how do you, what's the pep talk you give yourself to continue on the path of an independent filmmaker? It's so funny. I got to this place somewhat recently where I stopped caring about results and really, like, genuinely was able to focus on process. And also, and again, this comes from motherhood, I think, um, a confidence that is not ego-driven and that is not look at me, aren't I amazing? But a confidence that is about knowing that you're doing what you want to be doing and knowing that you're doing it in a way that you're happy about yourself. And so not, because like when Miss Stevens came out, the LA Times wrote, it's like a $600,000 like baby indie movie. And the LA Times wrote like the nastiest review. And I was like despondent for days and so heartbroken how like the headline is burned into my brain, like Miss Stevens flunks out. And I was just like, really? For like this tiny, sweet little movie? About a teacher. About a teacher. So then they think they're like so clever. <laughs> yeah, with their, yeah. <laughs> and I just, I don't care anymore. And I mean that with all due respect to critics because the beautiful reviews, I don't read negative reviews anymore. I'm like aware of them, but I just don't read them because it's just painful. 
Um, and they don't affect, they used to, I, I used to, when I, when I, when I had negative things happen with my work, I used to question the work and I don't do that anymore because I don't enter into the process until I know how I feel about my work. And if I feel good about it, that's sort of all that matters. And then when like the movie genuinely got some beautiful reviews from critics that I really respect and admire, and it means the world, but it's the icing on top of the cake. It's not the whole cake. And it shouldn't be because that shouldn't be why we do what we do. So I think coming into that understanding of myself and my relationship to my work allowed me to also be okay with what ultimately happened to Fast Color because every – and I, <laughs> I, had a, I had a public moment of maybe a little bit of grace, maybe a little bit of not grace at, the, um, at a Q&A for Fast Color recently where I just got very honest about – what had happened to the movie and pretty much every indie distributor passed on it. Um, even after we got great reviews at South by and people really seemed to love the movie. Um, a lot of these companies are run by white men who don't necessarily get or feel comfortable with a movie about three strong black women who are taking down the white men. <laughs> um, and so I think while there's a lot of talk right now in our industry about change. We're still a long way from that. Um, and, you know, I was really grateful to Lionsgate and Code Black because they were the only people who didn't pass, but ultimately didn't have the interest in spending the money. Because, like, that's what's so crazy. You need marketing. You need, as you said, PR. If you don't have the money for that, no one's going to know about your thing. And so I think what's so special about doing indie podcasts or doing indie films or doing indie TV or whatever it is you're doing is when people do find you and they're moved by your work, it's so powerful. Julia just went, she just <laughs> mouthed, <laughs> what? <laughs> because I have tears <laughs> coming out of my eyes. <laughs> I thought I was doing something wrong. <laughs> Which is also a classic female response. Oh, my God, right? I should just be enjoying your response. And said, I'm like, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Um, but, yeah, you know, it's like like Jordan and I were at the Geffen the other night at this show. We have tickets. And oh, my was, God, it's so good. And I was so excited because— It's so good. By the way, this is me being a bad wife because Adam actually used our joint calendar and put it in. And I think he's told me like 12 times, and I just keep spacing. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this Geffen thing? <laughs> and then I saw on Jordan's Twitter feed to go see it. It's so, so was, good. We saw—okay, continue, but we saw the— His last show. His last show. Anyway. Um, uh, so you were at the Geffen. Helder Gumaris. Do not let me derail my own podcast, I won't. Julia. I won't. Go. Helder Gumaris, amazing magician, card magician, storyteller. It's like nothing else. Go see it at the Geffen. But we're like walking out of the Geffen after this incredible performance that we were so affected by. And this kid who's an usher comes up to Jordan and me and he's like, hey, Jordan and Julia, I don't want to bother you. Like... I'm a huge fan of Miss Stevens, and I just, I'm so excited that you guys are here. Like, did you like the show? And it was just so special because you do. It's, it's very easy to get frustrated. It's very easy to get disheartened. But you have to remember that people, people seeing your thing is about access, and it's about money. It's not about quality. There are so many quality things that exist that people just don't have the the 
the knowledge about them. Like the amount of tweets I've seen about Fast Color being like, oh my God, I didn't know about this movie. I want to see this movie. Um, and so it, it weirdly gave me a lot of confidence in the work that it wasn't about the work. And then I think when you create the kind of things that we create, meaning your podcast and the type of movies that I create, like, and then people, as I said, when, when people do find it and they do mm -hmm. tell you that they love what you're doing, I, I sometimes feel like that's all you need. Mm -hmm. You need to pay the bills. Yes. But like knowing that people love what you do and that people, you are reaching people is the thing that's most important at the end of the day. That was so cool about seeing one of your Q and A's was like the line of people to talk <sighs> to you afterwards. And it had nothing to do with celebrity or fame. It had to do with the impact of the two hours of filmmaking that came out of your brain and heart. With it being, um, and I'm, I'm, we're talking about Fast Killer because I know that it's going to be streaming at some point, right? It must. Yes. We're gonna, yes. Soon. It'll, in I June, I think share. it'll be available. Okay. And we'll share the details then. <laughs> But it's about three generations of black women and, like, healing their intergenerational trauma. That's what I took from it, obviously, because I'm obsessed with intergenerational <laughs> Same. trauma. Same. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> with respect to it being about three generations of black women, you know, you've spoken in other interviews – about the fact that when you first conceived of the idea, you immediately thought of the character being like yourself. And then when you saw the lead actress in a different film, you're like, okay, I'm going to write it for Gugu. I know that when you were on set, you were very direct every step of the way that the hair and makeup team would be black. And you and so you were conscientious every step of the way. I'm bringing this topic up because it's so loaded right now. The idea of like what stories can we share? And this all came to a head with, you know, the Whitney Biennial. There was a painting done by a white woman of Emmett Till and he was in a casket, and so there were protests about that. And Emmett Till was lynched by two white men in Mississippi in the 1950s. And that's really what has sparked this debate. And that white woman has been quoted since then. She kind of went underground for a while. There was such a <laughs> huge uproar. But she had said when asked at the time, I don't know what it's like to be black in America, but I do know what it's like to be a mother. And she goes on to say, my engagement with this image was through empathy with his mother. So I understand that that is an image of a, also of a casket, right? So that's like a, a, what you are creating was full of empowerment. And one of the audience members during your Fast Color Q&A stood up and was like, oh, I can't believe that I got to watch this woman not be mm. beaten or attacked because usually in superhero movies, there's a lot of violence anyway, but then especially man, if there's a female <laughs> lead and especially if it's a female lead of like a woman of color, mm. like there's always that sort of like revenge porn aspect. Totally. So I, I want to be clear 
because of the world we live in today, especially. Like, I don't want to be misunderstood. Like, I am not comparing your work to this painting. I'm just saying that this painting is what sparked this conversation. So as a white woman, what were your thoughts and where did you get your courage to say, I want to make this about, I'm going to make some art about people that have had a different experience than me. That was really well put. You know, first and foremost, I, I don't know that I could ever, where I would, where I would actually. Now we're laughing because <laughs> my stomach just growled so much. Do you which want was some such a, No, that was such a physical reaction. <laughs> was a physical reaction yeah. to all the. Th- we have a lot of therapists who listen to the podcast, so they'll get a kick out of this. Like that was a physical reaction yeah, to like a release intense, of like I got through that. It's an intense. It's an intense topic, and and Ellie, like I really commend you too for as you're sitting there <laughs> laughing. Like I really commend you for. The Because words matter, and the way that you spoke about all of that was beautiful and um, aware. Uh, I get really frustrated when—and I was having this conversation with two Black women the other night um, because they commented on the fact that I used the word Black, and they appreciated that. Because I get really frustrated when I hear white people referring to all black people as African-American, as if all black people are African and American. So words matter. And the way that you said that was, it was just very well said. The, the, the main place that I see the distinction between that artist's work and my film is where I draw the line for myself. I don't think that I, as a white woman, would ever be comfortable telling the story of a historical figure of color. Um, a real person. I think where we can expand our horizons as white creators is in our imaginations. And I was, as I, as you mentioned, like I have said, I was creating this character in my head and then saw Gugu and Batara and Beyond the Lights. And her performance was so extraordinary. I was like, I want that woman to play this character. And I was, I suddenly in that moment became aware of my own inherent bias that the character I was creating in my head, who was a woman and a mother, was white. And I hadn't even thought about her race because she was just this vague outline of a person in my head who happened to look like me. And then in wanting to approach Gugu for it, she became this whole three-dimensional real woman who also happened to be black. And so I think that because this was a, ma- a story that Jordan and I made up um, and we cast three black women in it, it's a very different thing than telling a story about – a historical story about mm-hmm. black women. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think the most important thing right now in our, in our industry and perhaps in all artistic venues is mm-hmm. that we um, support and uplift and promote people of color telling whatever stories they want to tell and women telling whatever stories they want to tell. But I do also think that as white storytellers and creators, we need to have, we need to broaden our imaginations and stop telling stories that only include people who look like us. I know you feel very passionately about that. And I know that you also feel very passionately about speaking up about childcare. So our work as mothers is reliant on other people 
and I think a lot of listeners share this, that the husband's work or the, you know, the male partner's work, it's like they go to work and the childcare has to get figured out. But like most of that mental load and emotional labor is on the mother, even in the most progressive of households. Talk to me about your child care and how you make it all work. I'm probably going to start crying <laughs> um, because this is probably the topic that is mo- the most important to me as a mother, as a working mother. I, I mean, I feel like all working moms, or maybe all moms, because we all need someone to take care of our children at some point or another, have such a complicated relationship with it. I recently told because my baby is cr- like he's 11 months old and he's cruising and he's starting to like push around his little like push cart. And I had to tell we have two nannies <laughs> and I had to tell both of them, do not send me a video of him if he walks. Tell me you can tell me that he walked. I don't want them to lie to me because I know that's a thing, too. I want I don't need to know that it's the first not the first time that I'm seeing it. I just don't want the first time that I see him walking to be on my phone. I told my nanny to trip her. (laughs) (laughs) Or that. That works too. Um, I, I, I love, we have two incredible nannies who love each other, who love our children, who we love. What I tell Jordan every time I'm feeling disheartened or sad about the amount of work I'm having to do that I might not be okay, but they're okay, and that our children, whether they're at school or with the nanny or with us or their grandparents, they are always with someone who loves them, and that's the most important thing. As long as they are feeling loved all day, the rest will get figured out. The thing I'm most proud of with our older son is that he is fiercely independent and deeply affectionate with us. And I'm like, okay, it's okay. (laughs) Like, I might be a wreck. I might be crying. I might be watching too many videos in the tent on set in between takes of my kids Mm -hmm. and like making myself cry, but like they're doing great. Um, But our, our, you know, I couldn't do what I do without our amazing nannies. And um, it is an intricate, difficult, puzzle and it is mostly on me and my husband is an incredible father super involved i mean his wife is his boss like he's a very evolved feminist guy but even still at the end of the day so much of it still falls on me to organize to figure out um to negotiate and in particular when we were making star girl so ivan my baby was 10 weeks old when we moved to the location, Disney hired me at six months pregnant. And I ended up stopping breastfeeding when we went into production. And the amount of men who tried to tell me that I didn't have to stop, <laughs> I like mm. don't need to talk about them too much. But um it it was it was really hard to stop breastfeeding. I happen to love breastfeeding and Ivan was really, we like, it was great. Um, But, you know, working 14 hour days 
I am also a director who's on my feet the whole day, running back and forth between set and the monitor. I just didn't see a way to 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 balance it. Um, but again, he's fine. He loved his formula. He's a big, healthy baby. Again, it's like I think the thing that ultimately ends up giving me peace of mind is that I just have to keep telling myself they're okay. I need to work on the part where I'm not okay and, like, mm-hmm. I'm getting there. <laughs> but, um, again, it's that thing of, like, we, you know, we put we, we often put them first, but, you know, they're little and still figuring things out. And if they're okay, I think ultimately we'll be okay, too. It's so funny because Jordan was a producer on the film The Kids Are All Right. And I just keep thinking that in my head as you're saying that. Like, the kids are all right. Yes. The kids are all right. Um. Ugh. So we love second acts on Atomic Moms because <laughs> I love talking about a, being a recovering actor and how it <laughs> led me to the podcast and how this is such a healthier space for me and how I am, uh, you know, a highly sensitive person and I know to, ta- to you know, I can feel in my body when things are right. And when I woke up this morning, I was so like physically charged Mm. to have this conversation with you. Well, I should say that I am an Atomic Moms super fan (laughs) and I am longtime friend of Ellie. And I, when she texted me and asked me to be on the podcast, I think I like jumped. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited. I texted her back. I was like, I've been waiting for this text my whole life. (laughs) Well, I agree. Like over the years, you would randomly text me that you were listening, which was so sweet. such a, I love your podcast so much. It gets me through a lot of, like the first, the first episode that pops into my head when I think about it is the swim Mm -hmm. episode because And sort of like a metaphor for the bigger picture of what Atomic Moms means to me, which is that, like, it it helps me through, like, I have a lot of similar anxiety and neuroses to you. And so it helps me to hear you and other moms and other women talk about what we're all dealing with. And, like, especially for busy working moms who don't get to just sit with their other mom friends and, like, have the time to, like, talk through all of this stuff— I often, like, on my commute when I'm alone, like, having just left my kids and going to work, I feel like I'm getting that time. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you for doing it. But anyway, this. I just had to say. Thank you for this infomercial. I super I appreciate it. Which I think goes back podcast. to the beginning of, like, this whole episode where I was like, you know, it'd be self-congratulatory to, like, read your own <laughs> bio if you were two men. And um, Adam has complained listening to other podcasts about, like, people being like, I love this show. You know, like. But that's also such a male perspective, right? Mm, But we need to do this more as women for each other and with each other. And I super appreciate that. We had a double date probably 12 years ago (laughs) where we went out for sushi. And you were an English teacher at the time. Jordan was a producer. And I do not remember many things. I specifically remember the conversation we had about you were you had been trying to write fiction and you and Jordan were like it was it's not good like, <laughs> you were like i'm not good at writing and i remember saying and i don't know why this is so vivid in my head and my mind being like that that's not true like there's no way that like you're this 
<laughs> you're obsessed with literature. You're an English teacher. You are who you are. Like there's no way that like you're not great at writing. Like maybe you hadn't found your medium yet. But the idea that you were sitting at that restaurant saying, I'm not good at this thing mm. before you tried screenwriting. And then where you are now, like it makes me think about all the women out there who are telling themselves that they're they're not good enough at something when maybe they haven't found the right medium or maybe they just haven't been discovered in what like you were, you were saying earlier that there's or maybe they are good at the thing that they're saying they're not good at right. because again we're not encouraged to be proud of ourselves and what we're doing or say like I'm good at this it's so, so weird. How did you, you think about it? How did you go from thinking I'm not good at this with the book you were writing at the time to deciding I'm going to sit down with final draft and try <laughs> a screenplay? Oh my gosh, I wish I could like get back into that exact headspace. I think it all starts with a what you said which is so important, that feeling of being where you're supposed to be. And sometimes you think your dream is a, another thing, but then when you actually, like, feel your body and sit in your body, you're like, oh, wait, this thing that I thought was my dream doesn't fit me and doesn't feel good. I feel anxious all the time. I feel upset all the time. Maybe this isn't the thing I should be doing. And I think I felt that more. And so I was, like, trying different things. I am Definitely not a novelist. I like I crossed that one off the list. I think it's a very specific talent, but I do think that I am. It's funny because I actually studied playwriting in college, and I think that's how I came to screenwriting was through playwriting. Because like my first script, The Keeping Room, is very much like a play. Um, and it was crazy because once I found that thing that fit, I felt completely different. And I loved teaching. I loved it. Like, I started teaching when I was right out of college, when I was 23, and I taught for eight years. And I loved it. I loved my students. I loved my colleagues. I loved teaching. But it just never—that's the other thing, too, that I think can be so dangerous, is, like, you can even like the thing that doesn't totally fit. And I think a lot of people probably continue to live lives sort of that—that— that, that, they they don't quite ever have that realization because they do enjoy so much of it. Um, but I was really glad that I took that leap because now the thing that I'm doing, in particular directing as well, it's I think when you find the thing you're supposed to do or the thing that fits best, you can't believe that you ever mm -hmm. did anything else. You know, we would only be in contact like once or twice a year, maybe, because you're so busy. I'm so busy. We live on opposite sides of L.A., it's hard. And then there are those children. And then there are those children. <laughs> but sitting in the theater for each of your films that have come out, that has – I'm like, ugh, all I can think about is like these cliches of like shattering the glass ceiling. But that has done something for me internally to drive me and to – make me recognize that there are so many 
I might think that there's a wall there, but there's not, right? It's like, was it Plato's cave or whatever? Like the mm-hmm. idea like you just turn around and there's the sunlight. <laughs> or now, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll no, make right. sense <laughs> of that in our show notes. <laughs> if, like, so no, like, but that, and you have helped me turn around and see like, oh my God, there's so many possibilities. And yes, we're in Los Angeles. And yes, we live very privileged lives. But like part of this podcast for me in sharing my friendships and also, you know, the guests that I call in New York or wherever, like I want for our listeners, like these are women that like consider them your friends, even though you don't know them. Like just going to my daughter's preschool, the moms in our preschool class are so impressive in their bravery in what they do that it has really made me step up my game. And so I hope that our listeners can know that, like, consider us your mom friends in that. Well, I know I've said to you, like, I don't have a lot of mom friends. And I mean that genuinely when I say that the podcast makes me feel that less, like that I feel less alone. And as you said, it's like we don't get to see each other that often. And I think that we as women need community. Like Ellie and our other friend Bridget, who's been on the podcast, and I had a drink a couple weeks ago for the first time and I don't even know how many years. And yes. it was like, like I came home like like floating on a cloud. I was so happy. And Jordan was like, how many drinks did you have? <laughs> and I was like, it's not the alcohol. Like, it's the moms. And even if you don't get to have that physical in-person community that often, having things like your podcast or like stories about women and moms who are succeeding at what they do, it it that's, as you said, like even if they're not your friends, they're a part of your community. In closing, I have a little show and tell since you're a former teacher. And <laughs> but first, I need you to give like a simple log line of – the Keeping Room, which is the first screenplay you wrote, which was the first time I sat in a movie theater and got to watch some serious amazingness. Give us like the quick logline of it. And how can people watch that film? So The Keeping Room is on Netflix. Okay. Miss Stevens is actually also on Netflix. Keeping Room is on Netflix, and it's about three women who have been left behind at their home during the Civil War. All the men have gone off to fight, and they're in the South. And it's essentially what they do as the war comes to their backyard, how they defend themselves against the soldiers. And in my weird little show and tell, which I've never <laughs> done before, but I've been like waiting for this moment to share it on the podcast. And then I was like, oh my God, Julia, is going to be the perfect person <laughs> to share this with. So also circling back to your recent film, Fast Color, about three generations of women and healing transgenerational trauma. Last year, listeners might recall that I flew back to Chicago for 24 hours because I was nursing my daughter, Eliza, and I, I, we just didn't have the child care backup. So I went only for 24 hours uh, to Chicago to spend a day and say goodbye to my mother's mother. We had had some great years. Julia, you and I share like a love for singing in the rain. <laughs> and I used to watch that movie on repeat when I stayed with my grandmother. But in college, we had a major rift where I ended up saying something very dramatic along the lines of like, I choose my family because 
because of the way she had been raised. There's just like a lot of baggage, right? But I was able to go back and spend the day with her. And we went through these boxes of historical documents that her own mother had left behind. And there was a photograph of a woman that really caught my eye. And she looks really different. I'm going to show you this picture now. There's something very strong about her. And she was my great-grandmother's grandmother. Wow. And the weird thing is when I got back to Los Angeles, I opened a locket that my grandmother had given me many years before. But it's one of those daguerreotype photograph things. You couldn't really see who it was. And then when I compared it to the photograph that I had taken, it was the same woman. So I'd been wearing this woman in this locket for years without knowing who it was. And my grandmother didn't know who it was, like, because she didn't really care about this stuff. But then the craziest thing is my grandmother passes away. My mom gets all of her boxes from where she had been living, and we're up in northern Michigan. And my mother doesn't really want to deal with it. But I start going through the documents. And then I find this (laughs) book that I'm handing Julia. Guys, I wish you could see this. And wow, so beautiful. if you open the first page, oh, it's her wow. name, Susan Hannum Edwards, wow. and it is her scrapbook from the Civil War. Jeez, Louise. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. How is this still? That's so crazy that she kept all of this. Isn't that amazing? Her husband, he had kept a diary his entire life, and I actually found the page in the diary of the day Susan died. And she had had three children, and one of those children was my great-grandmother's mother. And what's it say? It looks like it says Julia. Oh, my God. Doesn't it? Yeah. looks like In it pencil? says Julia, yeah. Right? It totally says <laughs> Julia in pencil. That's so wild. But there's lots of poems in it about babies and about loss and about the Civil War. And they're all, the pages are glued on like an old accounting book. And then the crazy thing is I started looking up the family history more. And this is what really blows my mind. Her family came to the United States. I should have written this down. I wasn't expecting to share all of this. (laughs) Her family came to the United States in the late 1600s. The place that they first lived was Green Street in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is the street that my theater department is on at Smith College. That's so crazy. (laughs) Wow. That's her family. Yes, her great-great-grandparents. So it's like a direct line. That's so back. To that has nothing my to college. do with anything. That like there's not. Anything. It's not like your family still lived there, and that's why you went there. No, that's. But so it's like crazy. almost like it was like bringing me back. Oh, and she, this woman who this photo is of, if anyone's following any of this, who's in my <laughs> locket, she went to Mount Holyoke College down the street, which is from crazy. Smith. Crazy, which is but crazy. Not in many 1800s. women, right? Yeah. 
Wow. That's crazy. And I found out about all of this after my grandmother passed away. But I had just taken the photograph because, you know, there were so many photos and everything. But I understand but why this you took one it. woman is like is she incredible. looks really like she went to like she went to college and did things that people in her generation that women didn't do. She looks super fierce. Yeah. So there's some interesting like looks like spiritual jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, interesting. Yeah, those earrings. Anyway. Also, her hair is amazing. Right, which is... It's not a common no. hairstyle that I've seen of, like, people in the 18... What is this, 1860s? No. If she was born in 1846 and died in 1879, my guess is this is, like, the 1850s, 1860s. And there's something very modern about her. hmm And then the fact that her daughter didn't raise her daughter, if that makes any sense. So she died when her daughter, so Susan died when her daughter was young. And then that daughter's name was Fidelia. And when, after she gave birth to my great grandmother, she didn't raise them because her husband was an alcoholic. So they got, the three kids got sent out to California. And that's where like the intergenerational trauma and like rift begins. So crazy. Now, I think a lot about how hard it still is to be a woman. And then I think about how much privilege we have as women right now. Um, And just thinking about what it must have been like generations ago when they had no rights, no legal property, their own bodies. I mean, again, we're still dealing with that today in some capacities, but we do have a lot. And it's a good reminder of how much we do have as women. And it makes me think that this woman's husband, they, we were able to, my family saved his journals from all those years. And the only thing left of her is this one little scrapbook. <sighs> well, that's the thing, too. And, like, it was really interesting when I was doing all the research for The Keeping Room. There's so little, you know, in, in, in the history books and the documents that were saved, there's so little attributed to women. And even less to black women who were slaves. There's just very little that anyone else was documenting and very little that was preserved of what they were documenting. And it was also something that came up in Fast Color. The women in the movie, there is a journal that has been passed down generation after generation that is essentially their history book that is the only written record of the fact that they even existed. So... It comes back to the fact that we have to write our own history if we want it to be preserved. Julia, where can our listeners find you? At Julia Hartowitz on Twitter and at Julia M. H. Hart on Instagram. I will be sharing so much in our show notes at AtomicMoms.com including links to, like, all of Julia's reviews, where you can find her. I can't believe and greatest. I'm going to get to listen to myself on Atomic Moms. <laughs> <laughs> it's so exciting. 
<laughs> okay, everybody, uh, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you do your podcast listening. We super appreciate your written reviews on iTunes. It helps us with charting. If you have a friend or if you have a blog, like we we never turn down a shout out. <laughs> super appreciate it. <laughs> okay, everybody, until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Thank you.